All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 466. It is just myself and Jason today, and we're going to jump into myth, primarily Greek myth. But here's the problems. When we were better educated than we are now in the early 1900s, the actual classics, which revolved around all the myth, Latin, Greek, all that stuff, was the foundation. Math was secondary. Grammar was mixed into it, but you were also learning. Well, the men were learning Greek and Latin. I think the women were primarily learning Greek, but that wasn't true across the boards. Point is, it was the foundation to be an educated person at a time that we actually know and can prove people were better educated than we are now, which isn't saying much, by the way. There are so many problems that we're going to have to work out because history was shuffled. If you look at the walls in, say, ancient Egypt, People say, what were those crazy people thinking about? Look, this dude Thoth has a bird's head. They thought people had bird's heads. It's not it. And that's not it for Greek myth either. The best I can do to describe a way to think about what you're seeing there, and by the way, Egypt is primarily a a Disneyland for what we see, but setting all that aside, it's aspects of nature. And another way to put this is when you look up to the zodiac and you see the bull in the sky. Part of what that is, is the idea that nature provides the idea for bullishness. And that's the old par- you know, parable. What came first, a bull or bullishness? While there's no good answer, the point is, is that bullishness is a thing. It is an aspect of nature. It is a possibility to be into someone's, you know, the way they act or the way they are. And it is, in fact, the main thing that makes a bull a bull. Those are aspects of nature, but it gets worse. We have 12 zodiacal signs. We're handed things from before Rome, like the labors of Hercules. There's 12 of them. Well, I got news for everybody. There were 10 months at one point in Rome. So where the hell did the other two months come from? Where did the other two labors of Hercules come from? But this is only part of the problem. When you look up at the actual sky, everything we do and think is based on Aries being the head and you know this, that, and all this old information that is no longer synced to our time. And again, where'd the other two months come from? And again, how long ago was it that someone jammed Libra in over the scorpion's claws? If we go back, and Jason and I are about to do an episode to look at how we got our constellations, you're going to find out that roughly 48 of them came from some dude supposedly named Ptolemy. That is the only constellations that could possibly have any claim to antiquity or antiquities ideas with the idea that we have that somehow they knew more, which they did. The point is all that other stuff is a modern construct. And by the way, when Ptolemy was doing it, there was no divisions or borders. That all got solidified in 1930. And some, a couple of Ptolemy's originals got diced, sliced, or actually thrown out. All these other things are modern inventions. My point is, is this is why I'm no astrologer. This is why I have people like Athenon, because I don't know where to start. It's all such a shuffle. So for my part, I go with sidereal. We'll look at what's actually over my head. We'll do the best from there. Um, How many divisions there are? Well, clearly we've been living with 12 divisions, but that doesn't solve the problem for myth. We're about to cover 12 gods. Those 12 major gods cover a position of the sun in a 12-month year. There used to be a 10-month year. It is provable, 36 days in each month. 
They shuffled it, they sliced it, they diced it, and they did it apparently so that they could try to make men into gods, or at least that's the best I can do. And so what we have is a jigsaw puzzle thrown on the table, pieces missing, maybe other puzzle pieces thrown in. It's just a complete mess. So we got to go back. We got to start at the basics. And basically, Greek myth is that, or at least the best I can do. Anyhow, that was a big mouthful, Jason. Well, a very really chilly good morning. Yeah, there's a heck of a storm. Uh, It's possible you guys might get snow. I don't know if we're going to get it, but it's already super cold. But let's do what we can here. And um, we should point out that these are pretty basic mainstream timelines. Not, Not totally. And I'll try to make corrections where I can. And I will say once again, for people who want to educate their children and try to get back to what used to be considered the foundation of education in the classics, um, Fortune turned me on to Edith Hamilton. She does such a wonderful job of throwing out all the stuff that's just tedious, leaving what's there and compartmentalizing. In other words, an adult with a younger child could easily facilitate that child to take on Edith Hamilton's information. Gods and mythology is one, echoes of Rome, Roman way, the Greek way. I misspoke one last time. Just look up Edith Hamilton and you'll be able to find her just award-winning breakout of these old ideas. Greek and the later Roman mythology helps us to understand the way that humanity thought and felt far enough into the past that we cannot be sure of its actual antiquity. Today, what is called civilized man is very separated from nature, with any examples to the contrary becoming fewer and fewer every year. In the ancient past, man lived in close companionship with nature. By studying the myths, we can have a doorway that leads back to a time when the world and the human race was much younger. Unlike most of us today, those people had a much deeper connection with the earth being a lot closer to actually being a part of nature as opposed to just stripping it of its resources for our own purposes. When these stories were being shaped, it would seem that there was much less distinction between the real and the unreal, with so many of the stories being direct analogies for what was happening around the ancient peoples. All right, man, let's throw it on the table. Does anyone out there disagree with the statement that all roads in the modern world lead to Rome? I think I could defend that statement a hundred ways to Sunday. Here's how important what we call Greece was in their myth. They co-opted all of it. They even overwrote some of their existing mythologies and Greek or what they perceived to have been Greek was the highest learning. In other words, here's this place that's going to take over the Rome the world, and they freaking did. They still own it to this day. They had organization. They had military might. What they didn't have was higher-minded learning, so they took it from the Greeks. They overwrote a lot of it, and that's just to show the importance of it. But here's the thing about that. It's like all things that we get handed in history. Greece, really, what is Greece? Greece came to be in the 1800s, so what in the heck are we talking about? Well, someone else has said, well, maybe we should call them Helens. Okay. Let's call them Helen. So you're telling me that some dude in antiquity snatched another guy's wife. And so the whole race got named after the girl that got snatched. Sorry, there's logical flaws in all this. In other words, we don't even really for sure, as far as I know, know the proper way to call them. And probably because it wasn't like a a, a nation in the way that, that we see it. 
But the point I'm making is the masters of this world is arguably Rome. And what Greece, what we call Greece, was so important to include their myth, their learning, their mathematics, so many things was so important that you were not an educated Roman without it. And the only reason I bring this up is because I think we need to go back to the only things we can find where we had a higher minded chance at things. The best I can do is the early 1900s. And I know what the foundation of that education is. By the way, fortune's going to come back and we're going to talk about this very thing. Unlike with many other cultures' myths, the Greeks did not believe that their gods created the universe. It seemed to be the other way around, in fact. The universe created the gods. Before there were the gods, heaven and earth had been formed, and they were the first parents. The Titans were their children, and the gods were their grandchildren. The Titans were often called the Elder Gods, who were said to rule the universe for ages. They were said to be of incredible size and of immense strength. There were many titans, but only a few appear directly in the myths. The most important was Cronus, or Saturn in the Roman naming. Cronus ruled over all of the other titans until his son, Zeus, dethroned him and seized the power for himself. The Romans said that when Jupiter, their name for Zeus, ascended the throne, Saturn fled to Italy and brought in the Golden Age, a time said to be of perfect peace and happiness, which lasted as long as he reigned. Here's the catch-22. Hollywood, and all its wisdom, shows us what they want us to think about the Titans. If you take it as I've read it, literally, the best times to ever have been a human being was under the Titan that got called Kronos and conf it's confusion. It's hard to even tell we're Saturn or a king named Saturnus. But the point is something around the idea of Kronos and Saturn, there was a golden age that was truly a golden age. In other words, when Zeus came and took everything, things went downhill from there. This matches the Kali Yugas or the idea of the golden age, or at least one of the many renderings where there was a golden age. But as soon as they got to the silver age, stuff was already cattywampus. People were suffering, and it's just, there apparently is a time referenced, and this was taken over by Rome and written into their foundation myth. Let's be honest, Ovid, uh, Virgil, these are all whipping boys writing for the emperor. In other words, they're not going to write anything that they shouldn't write, or they're not going to be allowed to do so. But what they're doing, much of what they're doing, from my point of view, is tying the foundation of Rome the future masters of the universe, which they pretty much still are in one way or another, to the heroic times of Greece. So the whole fall of Troy, which is like the end of the whole Greece hero epic, apparently, they're going to take all this effort to write these tales to tie the founding of Rome back to the fall of Troy so they can be heroic with those old heroic times, whatever they are, which we know next to nothing about. But in the myths, as Jason is pointing out, the Titans were first. Zeus overthrew the Titans, but there were great times. That's what people forget. And, you know, you can go watch the Hollywood things. They always make the, the Titans the villain. But I'll tell you one thing for certain. I don't have to guess. I know what Hollywood is for. It's named after a Druid's wand. And what Hollywood does for a living is tells you what has been done to you what is currently being done to you, and what's about to be done to you. That is what Hollywood does. Lock, stock, and barrel. 
and we get lost in the sauce. We love it. We have, we're fans. We admire all this, but what I just told you is a fact. They tell you what has been done to you, what is currently being done to you and what is about to be done to you. So let's be honest about it. And what Hollywood does with the Titans almost universally is makes them the bad guys. And I would ask, are they? With what we can read, the idea of the Titans seems to me there was a golden age there and we lost it as soon as the Titans went away. I'm just saying, but that's my point of view. Other notable Titans were Ocean, the river that was supposed to encircle all of the earth. His wife was Tethys. Hyperion was the father of the sun, the moon, and the dawn. There was Nemesene, which means memory. There was Themis, which is usually translated as divine law and order. We have Iapetus, who was important because of his sons. One of those was Atlas, who bore the world on his shoulders. And Prometheus, who was said to be the savior of mankind. These alone among the older gods were not banished with the coming of Zeus, but they did take a lower place beneath him. So here's the rub. Is it, and what I'm going to say is, yeah, I'll, I'll admit up front, it's a little out in left field, but is it possible that everything that we know is so completely backwards that we don't even know good from bad? I'm just asking. I mean, not in the sense of everyone can work out in the, in the course of a day, but I'm talking about in the course of a world through history. If you look at Prometheus, as a matter of fact, here's another, well, let me do first things first. Prometheus in some of the myths, it's like this. He's charged with creating human beings, but he's got this dimwit brother or a cousin or something, I forget who, who gives away all the good things to the animals and there's nothing left to give to the humans to protect them. This is one version. So he goes up and he, you know, he makes them out of clay. Eventually he goes up to steal fire from the sun. I think it is. And I'm, I'm in the ballpark here. I haven't read it in quite a while. And I think he's warned, don't you dare give fire to the humans. And he says, those poor pitiful humans, I'm, uh, I'm giving them fire. And he pays a hell bent price for having done so. So in the course of that myth, it would seem that we are lowly suffering And Prometheus is the only one who will come and help us out and give us fire and help us in some way. Now, here's the rub. The current Luciferian idea that everyone says is satanic or whatever the claims they want to make about it is related directly to Prometheus somehow. I'm not exactly sure how, but I have a roundabout idea. It's basically the same. The the Luciferian idea, as far as I can make out, is those poor Human beings were suffering. Lucifer, at great risk to himself, came down to help those poor people, and he did, and then he paid a hell-bent price. Well, it's the Promethean story retold in some weird way. As it goes along, you've got to begin to question, what's going on here? And so then you get up to Frankenstein, something like that is another example. At one point, Frankenstein was titled or something like the modern Prometheus. So the problem here is there are so many different versions, but you end up questioning, do I even know up from down at this point? Was Prometheus a villain? Was he not a villain? Am I too black and white? Do I not know how to think anymore? Is it more, you know, genre than just black or white? Is there in between here? And this becomes the problem. But I'll tell you what, when all these all these myths and things were the foundation of learning in school, I'm guessing people had a much better handle on it. 
than I do being basically self-taught. Next, we move on to the 12 great Olympians who were supreme among the gods who succeeded the Titans. They were called the Olympians because Mount Olympus was their home. What Olympus was supposed to be, however, is not easy to say. At first, it seemed to be held that it was a mountaintop, generally identified with Greece's highest mountain, Mount Olympus, that was in Thessaly, in the northeast of Greece. But even in the earliest Greek poem, the Iliad, this idea seems to have been giving away to the concept of a more mystical Olympus that resided in some mysterious region that was far above all of the mountains of the earth. In one passage of the Iliad, Zeus speaks to the gods from the topmost peak of many-ridged Olympus, which clearly implies a mountain. But only a little further on, he says that if he willed, he could hang earth and sea from a pinnacle of Olympus, which clearly is no longer merely a mountain. With this being said, it does not appear to be heaven. Homer has Poseidon saying that he rules the sea, Hades the dead, Zeus the heavens, but Olympus is common to all three. Wherever and whatever Olympus was, the entrance to it was said to be a great gate of clouds that was kept by the seasons and within was perfect blessedness. So with my limited knowing, being a man who's going to be 60 before too many years pass, and I'm still trying to catch up and teach myself about the classics, I will point out a thing that I've noticed from movies and some other places that were not movies. I want to say Clash of the Titans, the original, but I'm not sure. But it's the idea where the gods are talking about what they're going to do with the humans. And then someone says, you better be careful. What happens if the people quit worshiping us? Then we disappear. Now, this idea is written into exactly what it's not that the gods created everything. It's more that in many ways, in many respects, that the people created the gods. So if these are aspects of nature, if these are things that are common to what it means to be alive in this 3D material reality, and we have the ability to forget it, and then it disappears, isn't that a little bit like where we are now? If you took 90% of us out of a city or wherever we live, put us in the wilderness, we probably couldn't even survive. How can it be that the place that bores us, that you know, we grow up and we can't even survive in it anymore because we've forgotten the aspects of nature, what it means to interact with things that are real in places where there is no lie. To me, that's what all this echoes. And that is the key thing I always remember is the idea that if the humans quit worshiping us, we disappear. And that's a stark contrast to the idea of there's these magical beings that made all us. They can squish us with their thumb if they want. Uh, They're all powerful. It's not that at all. These are all renderings of the human mind uh, to make sense of this place that we live. Aspects of nature is the closest I can come. We will now discuss the 12 Olympians individually. We begin with their great ruler, Zeus, or Jupiter in the Roman naming. The myths say that Zeus and his brothers drew lots for their share of the universe. The sea went to Poseidon, with the underworld going to Hades. Zeus became the supreme ruler. He was lord of the sky, the rain god, and the cloud gatherer, who wielded the awful thunderbolt. His power was greater than that of all the other divinities together. 
Regardless, he was not omnipotent or omniscient, meaning all-powerful and all-knowing. Zeus could be opposed and deceived, and the mysterious power known as fate is spoken of as being stronger than he. So I've kind of noticed a thing across myths where whoever's got the thunderbolt seems to be the top dog. It's said in a number of places that I've that I have read firsthand that Zeus was clearly in charge of everything. He was the ultimate power. When he said yes, it was happening. When he said no, it wasn't. Although there are many myths where other people go against Zeus and drama ensues. As we go through this, you're going to realize that the version like what Jason just chose to point out about Zeus, you can find other versions that are slightly different. This is another reason why I think it's great to go find Edith Hamilton. Because at the time where this type of learning was the foundation for all learning or higher learning, she picked out the things that seemed to be most apparent or best put forward at that time. So I think that matters. And I would pay attention to how she structures it. Clearly, you can go look up these myths. It's gotten so bad that like, I I will find a book on myth that looks really nice. I'll buy it. And it'll be completely different or completely abridged to this other version that I have right next to it. So. In some sense, it's become quite a free-for-all, but back in the day, I don't think it was so because people would drop little lines, little hints, little names, and everyone back in the day that was educated knew exactly what it meant because it was derived from a particular classical myth. And so we don't really have that so much anymore. We, we have lesser versions. Like if I, if I was speaking to you and I said, oh, it was a Herculean effort, most people would understand that it was very difficult. But other than that, most of it's lost. Zeus is represented as falling in love with one woman after another, descending to all manner of tricks to hide his repeated infidelities from his wife, Hera. According to some scholars, the explanation why such actions were ascribed to the one who was supposed to be the most majestic of the Olympians is that the Zeus of song and story was made by combining many gods' stories into one. When the worship of Zeus spread to a town where there was already a divine ruler, the two were slowly fused into one. The wife of the earlier god was then transferred to Zeus. The result, however, is said to be unfortunate, and the later Greeks are said to have not liked these endless love affairs. So if I'm not mistaken, Jason, you're sourcing Edith Hamilton here, aren't you? Yes, I am. Okay, there it is. What I take away from a bullet point like this is, again, who who the hell made who? Well, you know, a god that's, that's horny all the time, chasing women, turning into this or that to fool them. But the underlying thing to me, the probably important part, is the idea that if a god or a really powerful being has offspring with a human being, then what's the offspring? Those are what get called demigods, right? There's a lot of this. This even goes into the Bible. I think in the Bible, it's mostly the idea that the fallen ones came down and had sex with the daughters of men or something. But in almost everything you can read that's of that age, uh, you're going to find the idea of demigods. And that also seems to, well, I don't want to say it outright, but when you read the Iliad, there are heroes there that are, they seem to be beyond what a human being could be now. But to be fair, I have come to accept that the names in the Iliad or the, the the War of Troy, the names that we're familiar with, those those were noble names. Those were princes. Those were lords, I think, mostly. But nonetheless, um, the heroics 
are so above what we're familiar with now that even the Romans tried to associate their culture with that as best they could by creating the writings we have. The only problem with the concept of Zeus not having performed all these infidelities is the number of demigods, which uh, were often heroes, that did grand deeds in the myths. So were they demigods or weren't they? And was their father Zeus or was it someone else? Well, sometimes I think it's flat out nodded that that is true, that Zeus is the father. Look at something even, look what Hollywood's with doing the original uh, Clash of the Titans, right? They're they're making it obvious that Zeus is, is watching out for Perseus. And even though, see, that's just another version. What you're shown in that movie does not match the myths, really. I mean, it kind of does at best because it wants to introduce a lot of different things that I guess Harry Housen could animate. But um, the point I would make is this The idea of heroics back then was one of the highest things. In other words, if we're going to compare it to a time now where maybe getting in, you know, mortal combat is not the most appreciated thing that a man can do would be to be ethical, to be a man of your word, because all these heroes are most of them, not all of them were that like the idea of Odysseus. If he said something damn well, he was going to do it. There were, you were without honor if you didn't do these, but on top of that, You were going to do these physical deeds that were mind-bending, to say the least. Not only that, you were going to face fearful odds without shirking. It was the idea of having a core foundation that you would not violate. In other words, being a person with scruples, with a code of conduct that you wouldn't break. And I think that's a big part of why these teachings matter. How many people do we meet today that have a code of conduct? When we look at them, we respect it. My father had it. And I'll never forget it. And when I look around now, precious few people that I ever meet have what I would consider a code of conduct that they will not violate. When my father gave his word, that was that. Even if he was going to lose something to keep his word, that was that. And so I'm just saying, these are the underlying valuable, valuable lessons that a young life could learn about uh, in the classics, even though hand-to-hand combat's not the big thing anymore. Even in the earliest records, Zeus is said to have had grandeur. He demanded sacrifices from men, but also right action. The Greek army at Troy is told, Father Zeus never helps liars or those who break their oaths. These two ideas of him, the low and the high, persisted side by side for a long time. His breastplate was the Aegis, awful to behold. His bird was the eagle, his tree the oak. His oracle was Dodona in the land of oak trees. The god's will was revealed by the rustling of the oak leaves, which the priests interpreted. All right, you show me a nation of any account in this world and the bid for winner takes all that isn't using the eagle as their symbol. Well, here's the root of it. Also, you will find that the eagle often parallels in some ways with the sun. Other people have done uh, a lot more work on this symbolism than I'm going to lay down here, but here it is. Right action. Zeus isn't going to help you. If you do not have a moral compass that you hold to infallibly, Zeus isn't going to help you, which it's a bit strange because Zeus doesn't really have a moral compass. He does whatever the hell he wants, whenever the hell he wants. But nonetheless, here it is that one of the so-called gods 
is flat out saying, if you're a liar, I'm not helping you. If you break your oaths, I'm not helping you. If you don't do what I consider to be right action, and the truth of it is what they, what society considers to be a right action, then Zeus leaves them bereft. But this is another reason to read The War of Troy in the Iliad. There's all these discussions that go on during the war. Well, who are the gods going to help? And all the little reasons they come up with to help one or the other and the one-sided nature of some gods who have a connection to the city or a connection to the Greeks attacking. Um, And it all, in my mind, circles around the idea of a moral compass. Where is the moral compass? Who is the true hero? Even if he falls in battle, if he always kept his word, always held his oath, he was a man to be admired. That idea. Next, we will address Hera, Zeus's wife, but also his sister. Her name was Juno to the Romans. She is said to have been raised by the titans Ocean and Tethys. Hera was the protector of marriage, and married women were said to be her peculiar care. Most accounts of her show her chiefly engaging in punishing the many women that Zeus fell in love with, even when they yielded only because he coerced or tricked them. It made no difference to Hera how reluctant any of them were or how innocent they may have possibly been. The goddess would treat them all alike. Her implacable anger followed them as well as their children. Hera never forgot an injury. The Trojan War would have ended in an honorable peace, leaving both sides unconquered if it had not been for her hatred of a Trojan who had judged another goddess to be lovelier than she. The wrong of her slighted beauty remained with her until Troy fell in ruins. In one important story, The Quest of the Golden Fleece, she is the gracious protector of heroes and the inspirer of heroic deeds. But this was the only one. Regardless, Hera was venerated in every home. She was the goddess married women would turn to for assistance. Ilithea, who helped women in childbirth, was Hera's daughter. The cow and the peacock were sacred to her, and Argos was her favorite city. Interesting that even India holds the cow sacred to this day. And so let's ask a simple question here to start. Is there a spirit of the idea of being married? You know, if I'm married, am I acting within the spirit of this agreement? Well, this contract, if you want to call it what it is in the modern era. And in a way, that's what we're talking about. In a way, Hera is the spirit of that. But there's all these human foibles written into it. They're not kidding. When Zeus had sex with women, almost always he was tricking them to the point where some of them are not guilty at all. They're, they're nearly raped, if not fooled. And Hera still comes down on them like a ton of bricks. But even to the point where the Trojan, they say flat out, the Trojan War would never have ended. And by the way, it is accepted by most places that I know that the Trojan War was real, although it's been so buffaloed over and fake places found and fake digs. But most places say that Capta Troia, actually in the worship of Augustus Caesar, they call it Capta Troia or the capture of Troy, I think that means, uh, was a real time in the timeline. But it would have ended peaceably if it wasn't for this. And what started that? A woman. A guy took another guy's girlfriend or wife, however you want to look at it. That's what started this huge to-do. And so, you know, here we are back at the idea of ethics and a moral compass. 
that whole war and all the tragic things surrounding it started because a guy dropped his moral compass. Well, so did the woman. A man and a woman dropped their moral compass and look at the terrible things that resulted. At the end of the day, we got Rome. That's one of the things that they want us to believe resulted from the fall of Troy. Next, we turn to Poseidon, or Neptune to the Romans. Poseidon was the ruler of the sea, the brother of Zeus, and second only to him in eminence. The Greeks on both sides of the Aegean were seamen, and the god of the sea was all important to them. His wife was Amphitrite, who was a granddaughter of the Titan Ocean. Poseidon had a splendid palace beneath the sea, but he was said to be found more often in Olympus. Besides being lord of the sea, he is said to have given the first horse to humanity, and he was honored as much for this as for his other traits. Interesting thing. Uh, There are a couple of animals that really make you think. Horses are one of them. Uh, What would life have been here for human beings without horses or for that matter, without dogs? There is a very close connectedness. So there is a big thing being said when they're giving the idea of the horse, which also occupies the Zodiac, used to be in December, um, and is also encoded in the Bible through Philip because the name Philip is lover of horse. So it goes back through all of them. But think about the importance of Poseidon in our time. Uh, 80, 90% of the world under Poseidon's law right now called maritime law. People will argue about it, but the truth is the truth. There have been enough people, like I think Jordan Maxwell was one of the early people to really begin defining what had happened here. But how could it be that this idea of, of a land of a law of the land and a law of the sea could be independent somehow of what we're talking about here? These old gods, this one particularly of the sea. You don't think every time you see the sign of the trident, you're being told a thing? Go look at some of the naval patches, how many of them use uh, Poseidon or Neptune's trident. They're all echoing back to this time. The main problem is, is we're not completely sure why. We have an idea, but we got to put the rest together on our own, I guess. Storm and calm were under Poseidon's control. He commanded, and the storm wind rose, and the surges of the sea. But when he drove in his golden car over the waters, the thunder of the waves sank into stillness, and tranquil peace followed his smooth rolling wheels. Poseidon was commonly called Earth Shaker, and was always shown carrying his trident, a three-pronged spear, with which he would shake and shatter whatever he pleased. He had some connection with bulls as well as with horses, but the bull was connected with many other gods as well. Seems like a lot of this, when you see the bull thing come into play, that they're probably talking about the zodiacal period, which have been the sun in the bull for that particular era. Um, I'm pretty sure about that. But if we come up to the modern age, what does anyone know of Poseidon? You know, what has anyone been taught in, in the last 20, 30, 40 years uh, about these ideas, uh, Poseidon being so important because who basically is the might of the military these days? Well, the Navy is damn sure part of it. And the maritime law is damn sure part of it. Admiralty law is damn sure part of it. And I'm here to tell you that these are echoing back 
to these divisions? Why would anyone have said, well, the sea is different than the land, and here's the guy that controls all these aspects of nature, this other guy who's his brother does all these, and what most people now know is that Poseidon released the Kraken in Clash of the Titans, and uh, the sad part of that is there's about four or five different myths crunched into that whole telling. Uh, It is not one-to-one with how you would read it from someone like Edith Hamilton. Next, we will discuss Hades, or Pluto, to the Romans. He was the third brother among the Olympians, who drew for his share the underworld and the rule over the dead. He was the god of wealth, of the precious metals hidden in the earth. The Romans, as well as the Greeks, called him by this name, but often they translated it into dis, the Latin word for rich. He had a far-famed cap or helmet, which made whoever wore it invisible. It was rare that he left his dark realm to visit Olympus or the Earth, nor was he urged to do so, as he was not a welcome visitor. Hades was unpitying, inexorable, but just, a terrible but not an evil god. His wife was Persephone, whom he carried away from the earth and made queen of the lower world. He was king of the dead, but not death himself, whom the Greeks called Thanatos and the Romans Orcus. Well, what has Hollywood done here? Thanos, Thanatos, anyone? Uh, Is there a commonality? He's the guy who kills half of everything. Just saying. But in this particular myth, if you want to go read about the god of the underworld uh, and the wife he steals, from up above, this is going to be tightly associated. Uh, Edith Hamilton does a wonderful job of associating Ceres and the Elysian mysteries and why Ceres, which is like cereal, we get the word cereal from the grain idea, why this all matters. And part of it is it's the things we don't think about anymore. If we're going to have grain, guess what? There's part of the season where you're not going to grow it. And that's relating to the underworld. The world is dead right now. We can't grow wheat or whatever we're trying to grow. And you begin to comprehend why this matters. The sad part is that probably back in the day, everybody got exactly what was being said. And today we can't because we go to the grocery store every month and nothing is ever lacking. We have no concept of of what is actually going on in nature as we come through fall down into the allegory, fire and ice, you know, the hell allegory of winter. And that's part of what's being encapsulated here. And what is this? These are aspects of nature. And if you want to be honest, directly to do with the light of this world, what's going on with the the heat, the sun, and all these things. And by the way, those have their own gods. And by the way, those have been confused in modern times. I would submit that the true god of the sun in these old tellings was Helios. But quite often, it's overlaid as Apollo. And while I see the reasons it happens, I think it's a shift. But that's just me. Anyhow, go ahead. Next is Pallas Athena, or Minerva to the Romans. She was the daughter of Zeus alone, for no mother bore her. Full grown and in full armor, she is said to have sprung from his head. In the earliest account of her, which comes from the Iliad, She is a fierce and ruthless battle goddess, but elsewhere she is warlike only to defend the state and the home from outside enemies. She was preeminently the goddess of the city, the protector of civilized life, of handicrafts, 
and of agriculture. She is said to be the inventor of the bridle, who first tamed horses for men to use. She was Zeus's favorite child. He trusted her to carry the awful Aegis, his buckler, and his devastating weapon, the thunderbolt. The word most often used to describe her is gray-eyed, or as it is sometimes translated, flashing-eyed. Of the three virgin goddesses, she was the chief and was called the maiden, Parthenos, and her temple, the Parthenon. In later poetry, she is the embodiment of wisdom, reason, and purity. Athens was her special city. The olive, created by her, was her tree, and the owl was her bird. Let's ask a simple question. Has anyone seen a breakdown of the Parthenon uh, that they can reconstruct to some degree how it was put together, how just gorgeous it was, how people from other countries came in and just raped that place, taking the marbles and the carvings off it and hauling them away? Why did this place matter? Why is it so lofty? Why is it so remembered? You know why? Because it's amazing. Because the level of architecture and everything that went in is amazing. And it was attributed to this aspect of nature we call Athena. And part of it was wisdom and knowing. When you look at what was done there, how is it that we can't do that anymore? How is it that a bunch of rich dudes from freaking Europe came and raped all the good parts off that? Um, why was it so important for them to come do it? What did it mean to them that we're not quite grasping? What I would suggest is this is a good example. Pallas Athena, and there's another thing. When you see the word P-A-L-L-A-S, like sometimes you'll see it in old poetry. Most people today wouldn't know what the hell they just read. Someone who's grounded in the classics would recognize that's a nod to Athena. And then they would recognize, well, what were Athena's attributes? What was her tree? What was her animal? There's something being encoded and said here. She was a virgin, one of three, all this information going completely over our heads. But here's what I would say. Go look at someone who's breaking down what they have learned about that temple in Athens attributed as the Parthenon. And I'll ask you, is there something special about that? Could we recreate that today? And if it is such an amazing structure that is beyond our reach to really kind of design from scratch, because all we do is copy it. Um, we never took it any further. We copied the pillars and, and a few other things and attached them to buildings that are as ugly as sin in comparison. Why did they attribute it to this aspect of nature? There must have been some true value there. Or why would they have wasted the effort? That's what I would say. Next is Phobos Apollo, which also carried over to the Romans. Apollo was the son of Zeus and Leto or Latona, born on the small island of Delos. Apollo has been called the most Greek of all the gods. He is a beautiful figure in Greek poetry, the master musician who delights Olympus as he plays on his golden lyre. He is also the lord of the silver bow, the archer god, and far shooting. He is the healer as well, who first taught men the healing art. Even more than these good and lovely endowments, he is the god of light, in whom is no darkness at all, and so he is the god of truth. No false word ever falls from his lips. And how the mighty have fallen, because now Apollo is used by a construct of the modern age called the Space Agency, 
who uses his archetype to lie to the world, the Apollo missions. And by the way, here's another case of people will be reading along in old texts and they'll come across Phobos. They won't know what the hell they just read. Well, in many accounts, you'll see Apollo referred to as Phobos and not to be confused with a moon called Phobos out around another luminary. But you almost have to wonder if, if places like NASA were so just kind of rapscallion-y about what they did. Is this because he had a golden liar and they wanted to get the word liar in there? I mean, why? It makes no sense to have a mission to the moon be Apollo. And then later it makes more sense to have his twin sister Artemis. But I'm just saying, but at the base of this, this is telling you things. He is the first healer. Well, why? Well, a lot of people are going to associate him with the sun. Helios is in fact, one of the roots for the world to be healthier, to heal. Um, these are all things that are lost on us because now we're being taught that, Hey man, if you don't have a pill, a doctor, a shot, you're not going to be healthy. What's being told you here is the health has always been yours. It's out there in nature where there is no lie. Here is the original healer. Go read what's associated with this aspect of nature. And then of course, you'll be able to rally it back to the sun. I would also recommend you read something of Helios, but you know, look what's happened to us in the modern age. Why in the heck would anyone who was going to lie about going to the moon choose Apollo to do so? But if we remember correctly, it was Mercury that kicked off this effort. And we know a thing or two about Mercury, but I digress. Delphi, under towering Parnassus, where Apollo's oracle was, plays an important part in the myths. Castalia was its sacred spring and Cephissus its river. It was held to be the center of the world. So many pilgrims came to it, not just from Greece, but foreign countries as well. No other shrine was said to rival it. The answers to the questions asked by the anxious seekers for truth were delivered by a priestess who went into a trance before she spoke. The trance was supposed to be caused by a vapor rising from a deep cleft in the rock over which her seat was placed, a three-legged stool, the tripod. Apollo was called Delian from Delos, the island of his birth, and Pythian from his killing of a serpent, Python, which once lived in the caves of Parnassus. This was a frightful monster, and the contest was severe, but in the end, the gods' unerring arrows won the victory. Another name often given to him was the Lycian, variously explained as meaning wolf god, god of light, and god of Lycia. In the Iliad, he is called the Smynthian, the mouse god, but whether this was because he protected mice or destroyed them, no one knows. Quite important, he was often the sun god. His name Phobos means brilliant or shining. Accurately, however, the sun god was Helios, child of the titan Hyperion. Apollo at Delphi was a purely beneficent power, a direct link between gods and men, guiding men to know the divine will, showing them how to make peace with the gods. The purifier, too, able to cleanse even those stained with the blood of their kindred. Nevertheless, there are a few tales told of Apollo which show him to be pitiless and cruel. Two ideas were fighting in him, as in all the gods. One was a primitive, crude idea, and another that was beautiful and poetic. In him, only a little of the primitive is left. The laurel was his tree. 
Many creatures were said to be sacred to him, chief among them, the dolphin and the crow. It's interesting because look what's happened in just a couple tellings. There was no lie in him in the first roundabout, but as he carries through into the story, uh, that starts to be pulled into question. But let's ask a simple question. We opened up with talking about the, uh, the shrine, the Delphi. It's pretty well documented that people from all over the place would travel to go ask a question here. Were ancient people stupid? Were they dim-witted? Were they less than us? I would suggest that that's the opposite of that is true. They built things we couldn't start to build. Even with the modern equipment we have, we couldn't even lift some of the rocks that were moved around and shaped in ways that are so mind-boggling. So why would anyone spend the time to come to a temple? For that matter, let's go a step further. Why the hell would anyone build that temple? You know how much effort it takes to cut rocks and build a temple? Why? Were these people dimwits and just wasted energy because they could? It's like the Indian rain dance. You know, when I was growing up, everyone taught me, well, those dumb Indians, you know, they, they thought they could make a dance and make it rain. And the more I learned, the more I began to realize I'm the dimwit. There's aspects of nature. There's higher human consciousness. There's all these things going on that in my fallen materialistic age that I happen to be in right now, it goes unrecognized and is belittled. But I'll ask the question, why would anyone build a temple? Why would any Indian do anything to create rain when you work your ass off for everything you have and you're cutting stones to build those temples? You're not doing it for no reason is what I would add. And that's why I think these things matter more than anything, because probably what's true about Delphi, I couldn't start to tell you even if I wanted to, because I live now and we've fallen quite a distance. And that is as far as we're going to get through the Olympians in Hour 1, and there are still several to get through yet, as well as we are going to break down the story of the Golden Fleece. That's a big one. I would recommend that people go out. And this is another one that Hollywood's had its way with a few different ways. But you'll notice that key points are, are kept in. As a matter of fact, I've met quite a number of people who got the education I will never get who were taught that the world is pre and post Atlantean. And of course, there's a flood idea in the middle of all that. And they tell me things about Atlantis. The other night, I recorded an old movie from 1961 about Atlantis. And it's like this cheesy B movie. Every single thing I was told by these people was in that movie, in this cheesy B movie. And so we live in an era of delusion. Basically, we've become so comfortable with material life that we can't possibly imagine that humans could have any more ability than we currently do, or that there is anything more to know about the world around us. What I'm here to say, and what I accept wholeheartedly, is we have fallen for such a long time that we don't even resemble the people from this time we can't quite make out anymore. Heroes, yeah, probably on a level we couldn't imagine. Intelligent, probably at a level we couldn't imagine. Prescient, able to do things like predict what's coming. And Lord knows, I think all of it is possible because I think the human mind can do things that in our fallen era, we don't even think it's worth thinking about. Like I said, we're going to make fun of, a, of the so-called American Indians for, for smoking a pipe and trying to make it rain. Well, what if they could? 
What if we're the idiots? What if we're sitting here watching planes cross the sky to make our weather now? And those people actually could influence with prayer or however they may have done it. And I think we need to open our minds back up. And I think we need to try to reset back to a time before we had fallen as low as we are now. And for me, that's the early 1900s. That's the nearest I can put together where I'm pretty certain what I'm seeing and what I know and what I'm being told is accurate as it can be. And if that is all true, the foundation of that more educated, higher-minded time is what we're covering here. Anything you want to add, Jason? Well, so many of these things are symbolic in nature, or maybe we should just say they're all symbolic in nature to one degree or another. But here's the thing. It wasn't just to the ancient peoples that these things were important. Take a look around and see how much of this is still used in this world today. You know, the other thing I would add, Jason, is all this was apparently written when societies were lock, stock, and barrel tied to the natural world where there is no lie. And I think the moral compass and the heroic nature of a being tied carefully, closely to a place where there is no lie fosters that kind of higher mindedness. Maybe. Who knows? But at this point, you know, you can go on YouTube, look at all the people finally catching on. Hey, man, we went to Machu Picchu. Look what these idiots at university told us. They're lying. They are clearly, obviously, provably lying that these people were somehow less than we were. They're doing things that we can't even approach or even imagine how to approach. And by the way, it was worldwide. Go to Japan, same big ass rocks, same multifaceted, perfectly put together planes, go somewhere else, go to India, go somewhere else. And as I think about it now, I think the people that were much more educated back in a classical method who have an idea of a so-called time called Atlantis would attribute all those to pre-Atlantean times. Maybe that's attributable to the what we consider the flood. Not really quite sure. Still trying to put it all together. But with that, we're going to bring hour one of episode four, 466 to a close. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to join us at the website and log in for the full episode. We're recording this one, well, two days before the low point of the sun, which I will mark on the 21st. While I haven't looked it up, it's a safe bet. Might be the 22nd. Pretty sure it's the 21st. And we need to recognize these things too. After all, the cross that has been put across all of our religious edifices is referring to this to the solstices and the equinox. That's what it's doing. And that is nature. And nature has no lie. Hope to see you on the other side. With that, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
Belief is the enemy of knowing. Come.